Welcome to Sisters Inc., our podcast for and about women business owners, brought to you by Black Enterprise. I'm your host, Elisa Gums. Black women are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in America. And on every episode of Sisters Inc., we'll sit down with one successful CEO and share how she slays the challenges of being a Black woman in business. Today's episode is all about becoming an activist entrepreneur. We're chatting with Sharon Shooter, founder and CEO of Umma Beauty, and also the founder of Pull Up for Change, an organization that is working to advance the economic wellness of Black communities by inspiring change at the corporate, community, and individual levels. Welcome to Sisters Inc., Sharon, and thanks so much for sitting down with us. No, thank you for having me. It's, it's an honor. So before we get into your activism, I want to talk a bit about your business, because we really could have spent a whole episode just talking about how you've successfully built your brand. Let's go back to the beginning. What drew you to the beauty industry? Well, it's actually funny. Like most things in my life, it happened by accident. Um, there's not many things in my life that I was planned out. It was a grand plan. You know, we just, I had started my life actually um, thinking I was going to be a pilot. And um, my mom sort of put a stop to that because she was like, oh, well, I do want grandkids. I don't understand how this is going to work out. You've been on a plane every day. And so we settled for me being an aeronautical engineer because that fits. I'm African. I'm Nigerian, right? So there's only three professions, lawyer, doctor, and engineer. So we had find a career that fit into what we call LDE and that fit into it. So I started my life really as an academic. I was supposed to get a PhD at 21. I was one of those gifted kids who got into uni. I was barely 16 when I got into uni. And um, so I had a very different path laid out for me. I was supposed to be that academic who made her parents incredibly proud through achieving really smart stuff. And then unfortunately for them, I realized that I had a real artistic streak. So that introduced a bit of a dichotomy where you're being pulled in academically, but you have a real creative side where, you know, as a young teenager, I started writing music. I started recording music. I started, you know, performing, dancing, doing choreography. And so this was a real big tension in my life. And it, it culminated in me just dropping out of university and going the path that I am sort of on is not where my heart is because I just couldn't see myself wearing coveralls every day, fixing planes. It just, it's going to mess up the nails. So, um, so whereas I had the bat for that, I just didn't feel like it suited my vibe. And so I dropped out and went off to pursue music and by accident stumbled into beauty. Once I realized that music does not pay the bills until you become Beyonce and I needed a day job. And so I got a day job and it was in beauty and literally we need more wine to finish this story because net net, I ended up bringing Revlon to Nigeria my home country. And that was how I got into beauty. And after that, I decided that, hey, technically I've done this. I could go down and be an entrepreneur. But I realized at that point in time, I was so young. I had a lot to learn. I wasn't even 20. Um, and so I decided to go and learn and use other people's money to learn. And um, that's, that's what started my corporate career and what started my beauty career. And the reason I went into beauty is also the reason I left corporate because I had hoped beauty would be a place where I could use both my creativity and the academic side. And you add the hustle into that and you've got a really nice cocktail unfortunately coming into the industry realized that it wasn't that creative um and it wasn't that free um and that's ultimately why i left but that was my journey to beauty it was a very very happy accident and one that i would have never predicted in my future so you left corporate you started your own company what would you say have been some of the biggest keys to Oma's success 
Well, not having a plan. I know it sounds crazy, but not having a plan, right? Um, because all my success is deep in the fact that I'm about the why. That's what I care about. I care about why I do what I do. I left my job because of the why. I didn't leave because, oh, I want to go set the next multi-million dollar business. I didn't leave because, oh, now it's time for me to go make the Forbes rich list. Because if you want to live in your high paying corporate job, it's not really smart. You, you really sit there and, and, and just make the money and make yourself become a CEO and become one of the Fortune 500 CEOs and acquire wealth that way. It's a safer way of doing it than gambling and playing Russian roulette and like just throwing it out there. So I think for me, the key to success has always been I focus on why. And that's why sometimes it can be frustrating being around me because of what changes. Uh, but the why never changes in terms of the environment will always change, the climate will always change, retailers will change, people will change, all of that will change. But the one thing that cannot change is the why. And so for me, from day one, I've been very clear on why I do what I do and unwavering and uncompromising on that. And when you are uncompromising on the why, the how starts appearing because there's not such a thing as a plan that came to fruition. It doesn't happen. And any good strategist will tell you that you create a beautiful, sexy plan on paper. It ain't going to happen that way. And so for me, the key to my success has always been grounded in why the hell am I doing this again? And once I know the why, which I'm a beauty, the why is very, very clear. For me, it's about creating equity. It's about creating equality and beauty is just my platform and that's why you can see organic synergies like pull up for change these were not things that were planned either it's just when you're grounded in that why and you're focused on that why you're obsessed with the why other things start to come up and it's it's almost like i always joke with people and go we were all born with a very active gps that we stop listening to because of all the noise of society climbs on it and that's your why when you know your why, you're still plugged into your GPS. And guess what? That route changes. Sometimes it's a roadblock ahead. Sometimes the road's been closed and it's been telling you go left. But now you're not listening to it because your plan was I have to go straight. But right now you're walking straight into disaster. Being rooted in why is the reason I'm successful. I love that you said a beautiful, sexy plan. Like the Capricorn in me thinks there's nothing sexier than a plan. <laughs> Even though, as you have said, it does not come to fruition. <laughs> Exactly. But it's good to plan though, right? Because it gives you a board to which you can pivot, right? You have a game plan, but also aware that you have to be prepared to pivot, right? When I was in corporate, it frustrated me. A five-year innovation calendar, honey, I don't even know what I'm going to be doing in five years. And you're telling me to like literally stick to a product that will launch in five years in a market that is moving every month, you know? So those are things that are being challenged, are being shaken up in as we start looking to, you know, we can't be just create a plan, set on it and commit to that plan, regardless if it's working or not, because the world is changing faster than any of us can put our hands in it thanks to technology. You started your company in 2019. So there you are running a startup with your hands full, I'm sure, like all mm -hmm. entrepreneurs. And then June 2020 happens. Where did the idea for Pull Up for Change come from? You know, Pull Up for Change happened all in the space of less than two days, right? Because it was the byproduct of anger. There was nothing I said, oh, I do with pull off a change. I haven't been saying for years, right? Even if you go to my early interviews at Alma Beauty, still the same thing when people were complaining about, oh, we don't have shades of foundation. And I kept saying to them, you're looking at the wrong place. You're looking at the output as opposed to why, right? Um, the reason you don't have 40 shades of foundation is because the people who work in the companies are all the same shades that you're seeing out there. And garbage in, garbage out. You cannot fix a problem that you don't understand. So I think pull up for change was a very organic thing because it's something that I've been passionate about. 
Um, you know, it's the reason I left corporate once again to be in an environment where I was the only black girl in the whole Asia Pacific region, not just in in my company or I had never worked at that point in time at a company where there was another black person. Never known that experience of sitting in a room and go, oh, that's the other black chick at work. It's never, I've always been the only. And so Pull off a change was birthed when the Judge Floyd murder happened. We were all in pain. Uh, and you make a good point. You're running your business, but you have to do this. Do we have a choice, right? It's almost people ask me the question, oh, you know, being an activist. And I'm like, honestly, being existing and being black, you have no choice. What are you going to do? Like ignore it, say nothing. These are things that are affecting you every day. These are things that the whole world were hurting from a periphery. Um, with the George Floyd situation, we weren't hurting from a periphery. We were hurting, hurting. And we had to both deal with the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic, the disproportionate impact on Black businesses. On top of that, the threat of walking out on the street and not knowing if you're going to survive or or if you're not. And so at that point in time, it, it really is a point of just pure emotion. And that's what Pull Up for Change was. It was pure emotion. It was how I was feeling at that point in time. It was how what the things I wanted to talk about at a time where Everybody wanted to talk about criminal justice and police reform, which was very important and it is very important. But I thought there was room for a second conversation, which was an economic conversation. In my opinion, a lot of what we see in the police brutality is not a cause, it's an effect. That is like the outcome, right? And I wanted us to start having conversation about the root causes. These are some of the root causes. Economic segregation, the fact that segregation left law and just happened economically was like, let's not put colors on allowed, but then we don't allow them in corporates. Let's not put colors on allowed, but they're not allowed in Beverly Hills because we're just going to starve them and marginalize them to the point where they're not allowed in Martha's Vineyard. That when Barack Obama buys a house there, it's like, oh my God, Barack Obama is disrupting the peace of our neighborhood kind of thing, right? And so I think for me, I wanted to bring focus into economic marginalization because that's the key or one of the keys in terms of exiting from this mess that we've been in for 400 years. It was also for me the rage of seeing companies absolving themselves, like all releasing statements, oh, you bad police, oh, you bad people, oh, you do this and you do that, and I'm a kala hala hala. Let's not now be telling other people what to do when we are the ones controlling it, right? One in three people in jail are black. Companies have a lot to answer for that because a lot of people there are not there because they want to be there. They're there because they lack the economic opportunities. Corporations are the custodians, the direct custodians of economic wellness of any country in a capitalist society. So we cannot now be screaming at the police and not looking at the people who are creating a problem whilst also funding and then donating to Black Lives Matter and the NAACP. And my opinion is enough donations, we have to start acting. And action means we have to each look at ourselves in the mirror and look at what role can we play today to fix this for the future. And that really was pull up for change. And it was rage. It was me pacing back and forth my apartment, calling every person I had on my mobile phone saying, we got to do this and hearing everybody try to talk me out of it. I'm so glad you brought up a couple of things. The first is economic justice, because as you said, a lot of what we see that we think is wrong in society are really just symptoms of what's really wrong. And at Black Enterprise, we're all about economic justice. But you also were like, you know, you were angry, you wanted to do something and everybody was trying to talk you out of it. Yes. Like if you think back to that time, there were so many things that were big for a minute that that everyone was concerned about for a second. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it all went away. Exactly. So how did you flesh out um, from that initial idea to what Pull Up for Change has eventually become? Because now it's a full organization. Yes, yes, it is. It is. And we're trying. We, we get in there. You know, I think for me, because this organization was sort of born by just 
it just happened like everything else in my life. But at the same time as that's happening, I also have a business that it's a baby, that it's really like, you know, intense in, in this kind of early stage. So it's been a struggle, to be honest, over the last two years to sort of balance both of them and also feel like I'm giving enough justice to pull up for change, which my heart is so much in. Um, and at the same time, also understanding the limitations of how much you can achieve as a very small team who's not yet at the scale to just, oh, let me go hire 50 people to do that because that's a full-time job of its own when you do that. And so I think for us, it's just been really focusing on the work. When we started, it was about accountability and transparency, which we continue to do. But at the same time, we started to hold ourselves accountable to go, okay, it's one thing to hold other people accountable, but what can we do right now? And what can we do today? And my answer to that was we can help and we can support black businesses today. We can help to create the new generation of black businesses. We know that black businesses are over-mentored and underinvested in. Even with all of the action coming out of Black Lives Matter in 2020, every damn person created an incubator. And my question was, so after we're done incubating, when are we going to let these things hatch, right? Because we've been incubating for a long time. And the truth is, everybody wants to give you advice, but nobody wants to put their money in there. And that was where we created Make It Black, which is a campaign where we work with leading brands, we convert their package into black, and we deploy 100% of that funds to black founders and the new generation. Last year, we raised $400,000. We deployed it to eight founders in grants from ranging from $25,000 to $100,000. And so... This is where we're putting so much energy as well on top of the work that we continue to do with corporates to continue to A, make sure that they're hiring the right people, um, they are creating the right pipeline, and most importantly, they're creating the right environment for diverse talent, not just black talent, for black, diverse talent to thrive. In the same way, corporate had to go through a rebirth to create a culture where women could thrive. If you remember in the past, meetings happened in strip clubs and golf courses, right? These were not women-friendly environments to be in the amount of abuse, harassment. We've had to shake up corporate to make it conducive to women because somehow we understood that the boys club at the time was not a place where women would wanna come in and stay. In the same way, that work needs to happen for people of color as well to understand what are the nuances of having teams that are diverse. There are the unique tensions that it creates in having diverse teams and a hot pot of, of cultures in there. But also there are a lot of things that we can put in place to create organizations that are safe for everybody. So one of the things that I find common about people who have a heart for activism is that there are so many different things to tackle Yes. And so many different ways to tackle them that they're not yes. even really sure where to start. So yes. you could have chosen to do any number of things yes. to change the beauty industry or to change the world at large. Why have you chosen to do it in this way? Yes. You know, you have to do things the way they're natural to you. Right. Um, I don't know any other way to be. I joke with people. They're like, oh, you know, pull up a change or whatever. I'm like, because that's me. You know, I'm a direct person, somewhat abrasive sometimes. Like I confront things head on. So when you look at the way Full Offer Change was organized, it wasn't a diplomatic. It wasn't, let's take a pledge. Let's take a path to make companies look good. It was like, yo, produce that. That's not the question you're being asked, you know? So, so we have to do things that are natural to our personalities. Even the things that, even our day-to-day -day life, create problems for us. But you find where it's actually useful, right? And so for me, I think... The style of what I do and everything is just true to my personality. The reason I focus on corporate, that's what I've done. What am I going to do? Focus on entertainment? I don't know what it's like to be a singer or an actress. And so I can't carry that on as much as a lot of people have tried to pull me into that to go, hey, can we do this here or there? And I always say to people, I stay in my lane. 
I talk about what I know about. I can't change or fix all the world's problems, but what I can do is speak to what I know because when I speak to what I know, it's authentic. It is natural. I don't need to be scripted. When I start stepping outside that because I'm trying to please everybody else, it becomes inauthentic and that voice lo loses its power because it's not the natural voice. So once again, it's back to tapping into that GPS and going, GPS, what's the next move? And GPS going to tell you, move left and do the crazy things and tell every company to release their numbers, which was a strategy that was 98% sure of failure, that everybody was just going to ignore you and walk away, right? But you just listen to it blindly and you go for it because it's natural to you. And when, like for me, that's sort of how I do it. And that's why my activism is the way it is, is wrapped up in business, is wrapped up in economics. That's the stuff I, I'm, I'm really like all about. And if I was to do something different, as an example, if I was to talk about criminal justice, I would be completely lost. You know, I physically have never been to a jail before. I don't know anybody personally in my real life um, who's like, you know, other than like loose friends from loose connections. So that's not an experience that I can talk to authentically because it's not something I've related to. If my brother or my sister went to jail, that would be an easy one to talk about because I can talk about the nuances. So for me, it's really about staying authentic, staying in your lane, talk about what you know about and everything in your lane is useful. So it's about just making use of that and it makes it an easier path and a more natural, but also a more believable path and a more authentic path because it is real. You mentioned earlier the Make It Black initiative um, and underscored the really important part of it, you know, as far as Black Enterprise is concerned, which is that you guys are literally raising money and putting it in the hands of early stage Black founders. Um, but for the audience who doesn't know about it, I just want to take it back because the Make It Black initiative also has as its aim rebranding Yes. what the word black even means. So yes. can you tell us about that? Yes, that's the good trouble part of it. You know, I think for me, you know, people don't actually know this. When people think if I were to tell the common public black, right? It evokes everything but what it should evoke, right? People are squirmish around it. It has everybody thinks about an association with death. It, it's always associated with something quite negative. And language is powerful. You know, according to George Orwell, if thoughts can shape language, Language can shape thought. And that's the truth. Language shapes our perception of the world. So if you and everything you've known about Black is bad, how can you associate Black the people to be good? Black animals are the least adopted in any shelter because of people's reaction to everything Black, right? Um, it's the same reason, like if you talk to even in the Black community, it's a debate. Half the people don't want to be called Black no more. They tell you, I'm not Black, I'm African-American, I'm African-Caribbean, I'm African-Nigerian. And I'm like, well, you're done being e -e 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 -e, you're Black, right? Because that's how the whole world sees you and that's what you are, right? And why is it a bad thing to associate yourself with being Black? And the reason it's a bad thing is that because over time, with all of the history of segregation and, and slavery and all of that, the word black was really contaminated. And it was a deliberate thing. People don't actually know this. If you pick up the first copy of the dictionary um, that was written by Webster, um, really in, a, in the early 18th century, black was defined as light, the absence of color. And so you sort of go, how can something that literally was defined in the perception of black at the time was albino, like when something has no color, when it's colorless, that's what it meant to be black. Black comes from the world, old, from the old English world, B-L-A-C, right? So then you think about it over time, you now come into the dictionary and all you see is vile, threatening, evil, wrong, menacing, rotten, like all of these words coming in because these were the words that started to get associated with black over time.
we have an opportunity now not to rewrite those things because history is history, but to make the definition of black accurate. There is no other word in the dictionary we've had to have a debate with the dictionaries themselves. If you think black is synonymous with luxury, it is classic, it is timeless, little black dress, black tie, formal, that means a formal location. Not when your numbers go to black, it means that you're, you're profitable. Not a single one of these things are in the dictionary as we speak today. But that's a dictionary that knows how to put bullylicious into the dictionary. So when it comes to tapping into black culture, they jump in head first and put a press release out there. We've just officially made bullylicious a word, but you cannot update a word to be factually accurate whilst also marking some of these uses of black as a cake because nobody says, oh, it was so threatening and goes, oh, it was so black. And then I'm going to understand that that was threatening or that tasted vile. Oh, that tasted so black. Mm, I'm not going to eat it again. Everybody's going to be like, what the, what the what? So these are even words that are not even used in a modern context. And at that point in time, you mark it as a cake and you bring in the modern context in there. So a lot of times in our movement, people think that we're just plain semantics. We're just reaching, we're trying to be troublemakers to bother the dictionaries. But then the big question comes in, why do I have to remind you to do your job? There is no other word I've had to remind you to do your job. And you still insist and refuse to do it. Um, and that's why we must continue to push. And that's one of the aims of Make It Black. What we aim to do is reshape people's mind and their thoughts to how they think about Black. Put in the forefront that Black is luxury and Black is the color of luxury. And if we start to re-educate the minds, the hearts actually start to follow. That is so inspiring. As a woman who gets paid to work with words, who loves words, I'm like, wait a minute, maybe that's where my activism should be. I might need to go harass the dictionary people because we all need to do our part on this. We all have um, to. One of the we things I've to. noticed, that's mm. right. Mm. One of the things I've noticed about your activism is that it's always collaborative. The pull up or shut up campaign was amplified by a number of influencers. Yes. The Make It Black campaign includes partnerships with eight different beauty brands and also Twitter and TikTok. Yes. How have you been able to be so effective with getting others on board with your activism? Yes, you know, I mean, I'm from Africa. It takes a village to do anything. There's nothing you can do by yourself. Whether when we have kids, we bring in the whole village. So I think it's just naturally ingrained in that there, there's not much on your own. There's only that much you can do. What are you going to do by yourself? Um, and it's all about, that's where the real work is. As, a, as an activist, you're really an organizer. That's what you are. Um, because you have to get there, whether you are trying to get, if you're trying to get criminal justice reform, you have to bring people on that journey. You don't just walk up to Capitol and stand there by yourself and go, change it, right? So I think a key part of activism and a key part of being an effective activist is understanding that it takes community. And literally what you are, you are not an activist, you are actually an organizer, you're a mobilizer. You create a thought and the difference, I'm sure many people have the same thought that I did. The only difference is the ability to execute that thought. And to execute that thought, you need people, you need allies, and you need to bring in allies and you need to bring in advocates. And that's what I do with every single movement, where I was pull up for change and bringing a community of all of these amazing allies who had a platform because they believed in the same things that I believed in. But, you know, I'm like, oh, here's the idea. They're like, great, let's do it. And they use that platform to amplify, whether it's brands that are using their platforms, their resources, their money to actually amplify and pass the mic back onto black businesses. So I think it's really key that we all, that when you see yourself an activist, or if you want to go down that path, the first thing to actually see yourself at, your job title number one is being an organizer, because that's really a lot of, a lot of the work. If you're unable to organize people and are unable to organize allies, 
you will never be effective because there was nothing you can do by yourself. You said earlier how important it is to listen to that internal GPS. And when you said it, um, my thought was, and then you need to have the courage (laughs) to actually do the crazy things, like you said, like the internal GPS is telling you. Um, I saw an interview of yours where you said that what you're doing is career suicide. It is, yeah. How it is, yeah. You are raising a a lot of noise (laughs) and poking at a lot of big corporations, and I love it. Mm. But how afraid were you when you first started speaking up that all of this would negatively affect the business? Yes. You know, part of listening to your GPS is trusting it. And when you start trusting in the same way, I'll give you an example. That's why I use GPS as an example. If you plug in something on Google Maps and you're driving, you stop, you lose fear because you trust it. Because technically that map could be taking you anywhere. You could be going to a company. So if you let fear actually kick in, that map could be taking you off a cliff right now. Literally, you could be like right about to like jump off a cliff. But at that point in time, you trust it. You trust it so much that it doles out the fear. That it's until you get to that place and sometimes the place is up, you're like, are you tripping today? What's wrong with you? You know, but you're not existing with that innate fear. And that's the same thing. And that's why it's important to reconnect with your true GPS. Because when you do, a part of connecting to it and listening to it is trust. And when you trust, trust removes fear. Trust removes all of those thoughts. It doesn't even occur to you at all. People don't know this. With that whole pull up for change thing, it was literally five minutes before me making that video, which was 10 minutes before we were scheduled to post. That was the first time I processed what was actually going on. And that was when the fear kicked in. That was when I broke out into sweat. I'm like, I'm calling this off. Text everybody like, go, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. While I was having that thought, somebody had gone in, er- gone out early and posted it. So now there was, it was a point of no return. There was nothing I could do regardless of the fear. And I had to push through. And that's a key part of it. That when you're listening to this GPS, it gives you, a, um, I always joke about it, that sometimes success a key ingredient is a huge dose of naivety in terms of being so naive to not process the consequences of what you do, because that's the difference between you and other people. People talk about being fearless. There is no such thing about being fearless. All that happened was you did not accurately process the consequences and you were able to act before your brain triggered to actually start going, you're going to die. <laughs> All right. And that's it. And so, and it's the same here. It was it. everything I do. I joke with people. I'm like, my gift and my curse is that I only process the consequences of things after I've done it. And I'm like, I quit my job to set up a brand. Oh my God, I could have failed woefully. And it didn't even occur to me that failing was an option. Even up till now, just keep going, doing all this crazy stuff. It doesn't occur to me. So actually other people are the ones afraid for me going, are you crazy? This thing's going to collapse. And in my head, it's not even occurred once. It's just like, okay, what's next? What's next? And so naivety is a gift in conquering fear. Um, and not overthinking things. Think of it enough. Um, and every time a voice tells you why you shouldn't do it, tell the voice why you should do it and make sure that voice is stronger than the other voice. Um, I was listening to something beautiful. One, um, I listen to motivational things every morning. And a few mornings ago, I saw something that was really transformational for me. And it said, everything in life is painful. There is nothing in life that's not painful. Being single is painful. Being married is painful. Having kids is painful. Every decision, being employed is painful. Being unemployed is painful. But you got to choose what kind of pain you're about to, that you're ready to receive. Because on one side of one pain is reward. And on the other side of the other pain is regret. 
And so for me, I always ensure that when I'm afraid to do something, I think about what is the on the other side of it? Is it going to be reward or regret? Um, and I will always choose the reward side because net net, I'm going to be afraid of everything anyway. I'm going to be, everything's going to be hard and everything's going to be painful. There's no decision in life that is easy. And I may as well choose the one that is painful. It is difficult. But in the end, there is a shot of reward versus a hundred percent guarantee of regret. Well, has there been some fallout though, some backlash that the business has had to face because of this and how have you dealt with that? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, when we talk about fallout and backlash, I mean, there's a lot of places I'm blacklisted from that I can never go into, right? Even commercially. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. That's the path that I chose. I'm even lucky to have a brand at all and that I didn't get blacklisted from everything. There are many rooms that I'm not allowed into where I'm considered polarizing. And because they know if I walk in, everybody's going to be in their feelings as to what I, you know, what, what the impact of me being there. Once again, it doesn't bother me. The impact of speaking so publicly about Black Matters means that my brand is branded as an anti-white brand, as a person who, because we live in a world where to be pro-Black somehow seems to be anti-everybody else. And, and so you get punished for that because everybody assumes that you are anti-them. Um, and so you are not no longer just going, hey, I've got a great foundation product, buy it. You're not having to, hey, I've got a great foundation, buy it, and I don't hate you, please use it. You know, So you've got an extra kind of step to take. And even with ambassadors, we just had this a few weeks ago. I was about to sign one of the biggest names, one of the biggest, biggest faces of the brand of all time. A person pulled out two weeks before a shoot because they asked me to pull up down all my Black Lives Matter posts and told me that I'm part of an agenda to divide people and make white kids feel bad about themselves. Um, and we had to make the call to go commercially doing that was it's huge because otherwise my whole business is thrown into disarray. We have a whole year now where we have no marketing activity. Retailers think we're mad because we've promised them a person who's not coming through. But at the same time, we have to stick with our guns and go, I don't care who you are. I don't care how big you are. Disappointingly, you're a black person too. And that's a big shame, but I will not compromise and I will continue to do what I'm doing. And it might cost me short-term pain. It might even mean my brand collapses and doesn't survive, but I'm not going to leave on the side of regret because if I do this, I regret it for the rest of my life. Thank you so much, Sharon, for sharing your small business success story, but also for being out there every day and fighting for what's right for our community. I wish that I could talk to you for like another three hours. You have so many gems to drop for the people, but unfortunately we are out of time. Everyone, please take a look at the company website, umabeauty.com. That's U-O-M-A beauty.com. You can also follow them pretty much everywhere on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at Umma Beauty. Check out the podcast channel on blackenterprise.com to find Sisters Inc. and other podcasts from Black Enterprise writers, editors, and experts. Be sure to subscribe to Sisters Inc. on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and YouTube. And if you like what you hear, please show us some love by leaving a five-star review or put a sister on by spreading the word. This is Elisa Gums with Sisters Inc. for Black Enterprise. Thank you for listening. <laughs>